Well, happy uh, Lord's Day Summit Church. I uh, know that you just um, sat down, but um, at all of our summit locations, if you could stand up with me one more time, I want to pray, us to pray together um, as we get ready to embark on this week that is so strategic for us and making the gospel more real, more felt, making the message clear to our community. So I want us at all of our campuses to pray together. I want you to bow your heads with me, if you would. And um, bow your heads. And before I lead you, um, let me just ask this. If you have already signed up to serve on one of our Summit RDU projects, if you would lift your hand right now. I've already signed up. Put your hands up at all campuses. I know I can't see at the other campuses, but put your hands up. All right, put your hands down. If you have not signed up, but you plan to sign up, why don't you raise your hand real quick to say, I haven't signed up yet. I'm one of those that you asked last week that I procrastinate, but I did. Put your hand up. All right, put your hand down. Um, if you do not care about the testimony of the Summit Church and are hardening your heart and refusing to serve, if you would raise your hand, um, say, I'm not going to, period. Now, if you'd raise your hand, just want to see who everybody is, okay? All right. The rest of you who didn't raise your hand at all, you got a little work and reflection to do um, here. But let me pray for us that God will, will bless this week. Father, we do not do this, Father, because we feel like we have the answers for our community in ourselves. We do not. Father, our desire in this is to help people understand maybe a little bit more clearly the love and the grace of Jesus. We don't want to point to ourselves. We would rather just get into the shadows. What we want our community to see is the one who, though he was rich for our sakes, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. God, we pray that he would be on display this week. We pray that you would anoint conversations that we have while we're out there create opportunities for us to explain the reason for the hope that is within us. God, I pray that you would give us a new vision for our city, tender our heart for new areas of brokenness. God, call many of us into lifelong ministries, not a quick little project, but maybe a whole rethinking of our life. God, we ask for that. We ask God for your spirit to use us, not because we're worthy, because we are not but because you're gracious. Use us as a beacon, Father, in this city to point to the never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up, steadfast love of our God that lasts forever. Use us, Father, we pray, at all of our campuses. Use us in all of our community. In Jesus' name, and all God's people at the Summit Church said together, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome Summit Church at all of our campus locations across the Triangle. One of the biggest objections that people have to Christianity, or at least one that I have heard over the years as I've talked with people, is the idea that Christianity is too narrow. Um, The idea that there is only one way to God um, just sounds like it's, um, it's arrogant for us to say that or it's unfair. You know, the idea is, is, is like you got somebody who, you know, has never heard about Jesus. And when they die, God shows up at their deathbed and says, aha, you didn't receive Jesus. And they're like, Jesus who? And he says, well, it's too late now. And he casts their souls into hell. And as they go tumbling into hell, screaming, wait, wait, you know, he mumbles in Latin like tough cookies or something like that. And that's just the idea. And it just sounds unfair that God would have some arbitrary thing that a lot of people don't even know about is just one way that people get to heaven. Plus, it's kind of an unspoken rule in our society that you just don't tell people that their religion is wrong. If you want to be thought of as a civilized, educated person, do not say anything that would imply that your belief system, that you think your belief system is superior to somebody else's. 
So the rule in our society is you can be really sincere about your religion. That's good. Just don't be too excited about it. Certainly not so excited that you're trying to convert other people into it. What I want to do this weekend is evaluate these objections in the light of a sermon that Peter preached in Acts 4. The first miracle that was done in Acts 3, Peter's explanation of it is part 1 is in Acts 3, part 2 is in Acts 4. Then I want to show you how he dealt with this question right at the very beginning of the Christian movement. And I want to show you what his answer to was it, or, or answer was to it. Um, Acts chapter 4, if you have your Bible, you take it out and like I said last week, you're going to open it up or you can turn it on. Um, if you're, you wear skinny jeans and you're super cool and you turn your Bible on, do that right now. Uh, my pastor used to say that he loved to hear the sound of ruffling pages. I just had to give that up. But I do love to see the warm glow of, uh, of, 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 of Scripture on people's faces when I preach. So turn it on, on your phone. Um, verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, they being the apostles, this is right after the miracle, and Peter's explaining to them, a large group of people, that this miracle gives them a picture of the salvation that Jesus can bring to the soul. He raised a lame man, gave him the ability to walk. And Peter said, this is like Jesus' ability to save you from your sin. Um, when, 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 they were, when they were doing this, the priests and the captain and the temple, of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees were in control of the government at the time. And the Sadducees had a couple of, of problems. Um, number one, they didn't like Jesus because Jesus had been a threat to their power and they didn't believe in him as the Messiah. Number two, just as a group, they rejected the whole concept of the resurrection from the dead. So they had no Messiah and no hope, and that's why they were sad, you see. Nine years of seminary, baby, right there. That's what we paid for. Verse 3, and so they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. In those days, they'd often just count the men as the heads of the household. So when you add that number, 5,000 heads of household to the 3,000 that became believers in Acts, uh, in Acts 2, and then you consider, by the way, that the population of Jerusalem at that time, even if you counted all the visitors that frequented Jerusalem, was only about 40,000, you're talking about a massive movement. We're talking nearly half the city becomes followers of Jesus. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anus the high priest, tough name, tough name, um, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? In other words, if we are actually on trial for healing a guy, well, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. In other words, if you're actually putting us on trial for healing a guy, then yeah, let it be known this power comes from Jesus. I read an article this week um, called The Evangelical Adoption Scam. Basically, it was lamenting all the evangelicals that are getting involved in international adoptions and was just talking about how, what a problem it was. And the article said this. It said, evangelicals suffer from pathological altruism. Altruism is the idea that you always got to be do, doing good. I sent this to one of our other pastors um, who said back, he said, you know, when the best slur that you can come up with is to label somebody a pathological altruist, I'll take it. All right? How dare we seek the good of others? 
That's how we break bad, you know? Uh, we just go seek the good of others. If we're on trial today for good deeds done to needy children, let it be known that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, these children are alive. All right, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has now become the cornerstone. A cornerstone is a very important concept in this passage. I'll come back to it, so underline it or, um, or just press on the word on it, and it'll give you an option to say highlight, okay? And I'll come back to that here in a minute. All right, then the conclusion of the whole message. You see, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, uneducated, common men. These were not polished men. They didn't have fancy degrees. They were fishermen, what we would call in our vernacular regular Joes. But they were speaking with something that went beyond their education, something that went beyond their personality. They spoke with an eloquence and a force that just spoke boldness. When they saw that, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, he must have been like that. He must have struck you as somebody that wasn't really all that spectacular in his personality or how he looked or how he dressed. He's just a regular guy. But when he spoke, you knew that you were hearing from heaven. Verse 14, seeing the man, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And they want to just dismiss these guys and write them off. But then there's this other guy standing there grinning like an idiot going, hey, look at me. I can jump. (laughs) Want to go for a run? You know, and they got nothing to say. Verse 15, but when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, because the last thing we want is all the people in wheelchairs getting up. No, we don't want that. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What's that like for Peter and John? I mean, they know that the power of Jesus has healed somebody. And they know the Sadducees know that. And they know the Sadducees know that they know the Sadducees know. So what, how awkward is this? So Peter responds, and you can almost hear the sarcasm in this. In fact, you have to read it with sarcasm because that's how it's written. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you've got to judge that, pal. We cannot but help, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, what were those threats like? No, we're serious. We see any more people that we knew were dead and they're walking around, we're coming after you. <laughs> when they threatened them some more, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them were praising God because of what had happened. Last week we saw that this miracle showed us God's purposes for all miracles. This week, we're going to see that it addresses that primary objection that people often have toward Christianity, that salvation is found only in Jesus. First thing I want you to note is that this is not a new controversy at all. People sometimes think that. They think that that it came around with the coexist bumper sticker. Um, or that it's something we invented in the 1980s now that we became uh, uh, you know, aware of all the different uh, good philosophies that are out there in the world. But notice this, you see it? The apostles are not in trouble because they privately believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They're in trouble because they convinced 8,000 other people to believe it and they told everybody who disagreed with them that they're dead wrong about Jesus and are going to be held accountable by God for it. And because they said there's no other name under heaven given by which they must be saved. You see, the world into which Christianity was birthed was an extremely pluralistic one. 
I've told you before that the Romans had perfected this as a matter of politics. The Romans who ruled the world at the time had, had a rule in the Pax Romana, which meant the peace of Rome. And basically the rule was you can believe whatever you want. There were thousands of gods represented in the Roman empires, gods of various na- natural spheres, gods of different peoples. They had them all in the pantheon. You know, that's where you had all these statues, all these gods. And the rule was you can worship whatever gods you want. Just don't say that your God is the supreme God. Because if you say your God is the supreme God, they thought that would mean you would want to rule over everybody. Right? So on the top of the pantheon was this little symbol with Caesar's emblem. And it said, get this, Caesar is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. You recognize that phraseology? So when the apostles say, no, he's not. Jesus is the king of kings and Lord of lords. That's the fight that they're picking. The problem was not that they believed that Jesus had raised from the dead. The problem is they're telling everybody that they've got to believe Jesus rose from the dead because he's the only name given under heaven by which you can be saved. If you were here this summer in the Elijah, Elisha series, I showed you that was the question then too. The question wasn't can we worship God? The question is, is God the only God that we could worship? You see, for as long as there has been human history, this has been the fundamental religious question. Are there multiple ways to God or not? Because what I'm going to show you is that that question goes to the core of what's wrong with the world, that goes to the core of our relationship to God, goes to the core of, of how we're going to fix it. Peter's explanation deals with two of the biggest objections that people make today about salvation being found only in Jesus. Here they are, objection number one. Objection number one, claiming that Jesus is the only way to God is arrogant. Claiming that Jesus is the only way to God is arrogant. People say, well, if you think that Jesus is the only way, then you must think that you're better than everybody else. You must see things that nobody else sees. You must think that God prefers you and people who believe like you. So let's just ask that question. Is Peter claiming to be smarter? No. In fact, the text goes out of its way to point out that they weren't that smart. Verse 13, do you see it? When they saw they were uneducated, common in, they were astonished. Luke, the author, says, hey, these guys were not the spiciest Doritos in the bag. Which is all the more funny to me when you consider the fact that Luke, who wrote this, was a friend of Peter and John's. And he was a doctor, which means he was smart. And he's like, yeah, my friends are not really smart, <laughs> you know? I, I can imagine Peter reading this later going, seriously, Luke, is that necessary? Did you have to put that in? There's no presumption here to superior intelligence. In fact, Peter just kind of puts his shoulders up and says, look, we cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. In other words, this has nothing to do with us being smarter. When it comes to education, you guys got us beat hands down. Your IQs are higher. You got more degrees hanging on your wall than a thermometer. I get that. But see, there was this guy, and you killed him because you thought he was a fraud. And then you put him in a tomb and guarded it with a garrison of Roman soldiers. But then he came back from the dead just like he said he would. And we saw him, and we ate with him, and we watched him ascend to heaven. No offense to your massive education, but if you got a choice between believing a bunch of guys with degrees hanging on their wall and another guy who came back from the dead, we're going with the guy who came back from the dead. That's essentially what Peter said. Is it arrogant to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? No, I mean, not necessarily. In fact, it can be just as arrogant, if not more so, to say that he's not. When I was in college, I I heard this, one of my professors told me this parable. And I'm sure you've heard some version of it before, too. Um, He he, he basically explained the world like this. He said, the parable actually comes from India. He 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 said, our quest for God is like three blind men that fall into a pit. You heard this? Three blind men fall into a pit, and there's an elephant in there. 
So they're blind, so they obviously they can't see the elephant. So um, each of them stands up, and one of them grabs hold of the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, it's a snake. And the other one grabs hold of the tusk of the elephant and says, no, it's a you know, spear. And the other one you know, touches the side of the elephant and says, no, it's a big wall. And the moral of the story is no one blind person sees the whole elephant, and if they would be humble enough to listen to what the other ones had to say, they would get a more full picture of the elephant. And so it is with God. Each of the people in the world have a different viewpoint on God, and if we would be humble enough to listen to each other, we get a fuller view of God than any one of us by ourselves. Have you heard this? This is like the life of Pi, the whole movie, right? Yeah, so, right, that's, that's the message. Um, I was reading a book um, after college by a guy named Leslie Newbigin. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, but he was a missionary in India, and he said for years in India, he was told this parable, and he didn't really know how to respond to it. He said until one day it occurred to him that the parable had two major problems in it. He said, number one, he said the first problem is, who is it that actually sees the whole elephant? Who's the only person in the parable who sees the whole elephant? The person telling the parable. How does he know each of the blind men only see a part? Well, because he sees the whole thing. So Leslie Newbigin says, doesn't that mean he is claiming for himself what he denies to everybody else? Isn't he saying everyone else is blind and only sees a part, and I know that because I see the whole thing? He says, that's kind of hypocritical. You see, if you're listening to me and you say, well, what you've got about God is partially true, but you need to open your mind to all the different viewpoints on God because then we'll get a fuller picture of God. You're doing the exact same thing I'm doing. You're just not admitting it, and you're a hypocrite. Right? So that's one problem. He said the second problem with the parable is, what if the elephant starts to speak? What if the elephant says, hey, I'm an elephant? That changes the equation, right? Christian faith, listen, is essentially believing that God spoke in Jesus and told us who he was, verified it by prophecies and miracles, and most importantly, the resurrection. To believe that Jesus was telling the truth and that he is who he says he is is not necessarily arrogant. You might claim that it's gullible, but you shouldn't say that it's arrogant if you're You think that, be intellectually consistent. It's not inherently arrogant. Peter's like, look, the elephant spoke. And then the elephant got killed and raised from the dead and said that this is what the elephant was like. We cannot but speak what we've seen and heard. Believing Jesus is who he says he is, if you ask me, is quite humble. Because it means admitting that we weren't smart enough to figure out truth. So God had to come down himself and reveal it to us. Was Peter saying that the apostles are morally superior? Is that what he's saying? He's saying that the reason we understand this is because we're morally better than all you people? No. In fact, right after the miracle, Peter said this. This was last week. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power of piety we made him walk? Say the word piety. He's saying, you really feel like that, that we did this because we're more spiritual than you? Peter, if you remember, is still raw with embarrassment over denying Jesus three times in the space of one night. Almost all the people that he's talking to know that he did that. And Peter can probably feel the shame coming toward him when he stands up to preach. If I knew that a bunch of you knew that I was a hypocrite, and like, you know, whatever, you know, some of you just had reason to know that I'm I'm complete. When I stand up here, I feel compromised, right? Peter's standing up, and he knows there are people out in the audience going, you know, that's the guy. Who, like, this 14-year-old girl is like, hey, do you know Jesus? He's like, no, I don't even know him. You know, and they're snickering and laughing while he's up there. Peter's still raw with embarrassment. He knows he's not morally superior. But see, he knew that God's salvation was a gift of grace, not according to how good Peter was. It was a gift of God's grace, and he gave it just like he gave healing to the lame man. That lame man was not healed because he, had, he was better than all the other lame people. He wasn't healed because he had more potential in his legs. And God didn't say, well, that one right there is not really that lame. Go heal him. 
He healed him just because he received it by grace. And Peter said salvation is like that. It's not that we're morally superior. It's a gift of grace to all who will receive it by faith. So Peter's claim and our claim that salvation is only found in Jesus has nothing to do with believing that we're intellectually or morally superior. You say, well, I just don't like anything that is exclusive and puts people on the outside. Listen, all religious claims, all moral claims are exclusive. For example, I've had people say this to me, I believe that all good people of every religion goes to heaven. That's a pretty, that sounds like a pretty inclusive statement, doesn't it? All right. Who have you just excluded? All good people of every religion, you excluded bad people, and I guess you get to define what's bad. And I'm assuming that racists, rapists, child molesters, terrorists, they're on that list, right? Well, you know, depending on your viewpoint, maybe you would put sexually immoral people on that list. Or maybe if you're of a different viewpoint, you'd put anybody who judges somebody else for their sexual immorality, maybe you put them on the bad list. The point is, you got a list and some people are on it and some aren't. Plus, if you exclude bad people, guess who else you, 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 you cut out? Moral failures. That's who you cut out. So Paul's not on your list. King David's not on your list. Moses is not on your list. Those are murderers and adulterers. You see, I would say that even your attempt at inclusivity actually turns out to be quite exclusive. You, you say, well, that's why I'm not religious at all. I just don't exclude anybody for any reason. You still have a standard for what constitutes a good person. And there's a line for you. I've told you this before. I used to live right on the border of Durham and Chapel Hill. You know, typical kind of Chapel Hill neighborhood. Chapel Hill, that's a pretty open, accepting place, right? Isn't that right, Chapel Hill? Aren't you guys open and accepting? Yeah, I mean, that's what, with the reputation. They're the most accepting place on the planet. Try driving an SUV through downtown Chapel Hill with an NRA sticker on it and a little one that says global warming is a hoax, and that's why you refuse to recycle. <laughs> and you'll see just how open that place really is. Now, I never did that, by the way, just in case you're curious. I never did that. But I'm just saying that even in the places that claim to be open, there's a line about who's in and who's out. I, I used to say that my neighbors believed in justification by recycling. Uh, that's how you get saved as you recycle. Um, all religious and all moral viewpoints end up being exclusive. Everybody has a line for who's in and who's out. And I'm just telling you, you've got to be intellectually consistent with that. But see, the gospel of Jesus is a different kind of exclusivity. It's a different kind of exclusivity because the gospel teaches that our acceptance with God is not based on anything about us. It's not based on, on the superiority of our moral record. It's not based on the viewpoint given to us by our education. It's certainly not based on our race or socio-political status. God gives salvation as a gift to all who will repent and receive it that way. You see, that lame man in that story is a picture of you and me. Did you know that according to the Jewish law, lame people could not go into the temple? That's why he's outside of it. Leviticus 16.21, no one that is lame or with a physical deformity can go into the temple, which represents the presence of God. That's a picture of you and me. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That we cannot stand in God's presence for a sinner to stand in God's presence means that they would die. I am that lame person and so are you. Salvation is a gift of grace to any lame person excluded from the presence of God who realizes that and receives it by faith. You might think, my friend, that you're a terribly bad sinner, that you're more lame than any of the rest of us. But you know what? God has salvation and the ability to forgive and make new for anybody who will repent and believe, anybody. On the other hand, you might think that you're not that bad of a sinner. You might think that on the whole, you're pretty good. God's verdict on you is still lame, blind, wicked, poor, dead. 
And in fact, you're the one that's probably going to have a harder time with salvation because in order for you to be able to receive that healing, you've got to acknowledge there's no way you're getting in the presence of God on your own. You see, Christianity is a different kind of exclusivity. I love how Tim Keller says it. All religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there has ever been. And see, when you believe this, listen, far from making you arrogant and judgmental, it makes you loving and gracious and accepting. It changes. You see in verse 11, I told you to highlight it, verse 11, that Jesus has become the cornerstone of God's building. In those days, it's true in our day too, but especially in those days, the cornerstone was the most important rock in the whole edifice. Because the cornerstone, the whole shape of the building, the strength of the building, the height of the building was all determined by that one stone, the cornerstone. And he says, Jesus became our cornerstone and that reshaped the whole building of who we are. You want to know what a Christian looks like? You got to look at the cornerstone. Really believing the gospel changes the shape of who we are. We're not arrogant, or at least we shouldn't be if we understand the gospel, because we realize that we're not accepted because of our good works. We're not, we're, 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 not, we're, we're not Christians because we figured out truth and we were smarter than everybody else. God healed us when we were lame. God saved us when we were outside of his presence. I've told you before, I don't even like the word saved. I, I, I mean, for years, I'm just like, is there a different word we could use? Because it just sounds so like country redneck, doesn't it? I mean, I just have this image of a country preacher going, saved, you know, like nine syllables. I'm like, oh, it just sounds so uneducated. But I'm like, what word is there that I could come up with that's better? I mean, you know, I trusted Jesus and I was improved. You know, I, I asked Jesus to come into my life and he enhanced me when I was 16. It just, it doesn't capture it. He saved me. I was blind and he made me see. I was guilty and I was under condemnation and he took it. I was dead and he made me alive. My sins were like scarlet and he made them as white as snow. I was headed for destruction, a child of wrath, and God changed my heart, healed it, and he forgave my sin. And there's just no other word that can capture it. And when you believe that, it transforms you into a gracious, forgiving person because that's what God was to you. Worst gun tragedy ever in our country, at least as far as I know, happened in October 2007. The Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you might remember this. 2007, there was a, a gunman who was mad at God, was what he said. Went into this little one-room Amish schoolhouse and he took 10 girls, lined them up against the chalkboard, and sent everybody else out. And he told them he was going to shoot all of them. Well, two of the girls in this Amish community, in this schoolroom, stepped forward and asked if he, they could just shoot them instead of everybody. At that point, the gunman just went crazy and lost his mind and shot every single one of them. Five of them survived the gunshot wound, which is how we know what happened inside of there. Um, five of them lived to tell about it. The gunman then shot himself. A couple weeks after this tragedy um, was over, I was reading this article, and you can go back and look it up. You can find it on the internet. Um, one of the families of one of the girls that had been killed got into their buggy because they were Amish, and they made the you know four or five mile journey to where this killer had lived, his home. And they go to his home, and they go up to the door of his house where this guy's widow lives, and they knock on the door, and this widow comes and to the door. And they identify themselves and they say, we're not here to take revenge. We're here because we lost our most precious daughter. But we know that your kids lost a daddy and you lost a husband. And we're here to grieve together. 
Even the cynical journalist who wrote this article, you can hear them in what they write acknowledging that something divine was happening. Where does that kind of impulse come from? The Amish are fundamentalist by anyone's standard. Could we agree on that? But their fundamentalism doesn't lead to hatred. Where did these girls get the idea to die for their friends? Where did their parents get the idea to forgive the killer and his family? Here's where. Even in a fundamentalist group like the Amish, the cornerstone of Christian faith is a man on a cross loving people who don't love him back, forgiving people who are taking his life from him, blessing people who are cursing him, offering his life as a sacrifice for those who are trying to take it, and having that as the cornerstone of your faith fundamentally changes how we relate to people. So when you see people who are arrogant with the claims of Christianity, and I admit there are a lot of them, and they always seem to migrate to cable news networks, right? But when you see people who are arrogant with the claims of Christianity, that is not because they believe the message too fervently. It's because they don't understand the message at all. Because anyone who understands the gospel does not speak that way. They begin to speak with a humility and a graciousness, a boldness, yes, but a humility that understands that I'm the lame person and I don't speak to you as a righteous, superior person. I speak as one who's been healed, one who's been plucked from the burning, and I'm just trying to tell you what I've seen and heard. Around here we say that people that speak with arrogance about the claims of Christ have theological bad breath. The words coming out of their mouth might be the correct one, but they stink and you just don't want to talk to them. Right? I'm saying all this to show you that claiming Jesus is the only way is not necessarily arrogant. To our skeptical friends this weekend, I would just tell you, be intellectually consistent. Everybody's view of truth and morality is exclusive, including your own. This message is the most humble, inclusive exclusivity because it declares that our understanding of truth and that our acceptance before God is not based on our goodness, our righteousness, or our intelligence. It's based on a gift of grace. Objection number two, religion's just a matter of personal preference. Religion's just a matter of personal preference. People say, well, look, you ought to be free to choose whatever religion works for you. If your religion works for you, who am I to say that it's wrong? If, you know, if you like IHOP better than Waffle House, you're wrong, but you know, what am I? Who am I to criticize? If you have a good time by going to a rock concert with a bunch of your friends and yelling your head off, great. You know, if you choose to go out and walk in the woods by yourself, whatever works for you, who am I to say what's superior? People think of religion that way. But see, here's a question. Listen, most people in our society think of religion that way. But here's the question you've got to ask. Should religion go into that category? Can I give you a little history in the inside of Western philosophy? Nerd moment, Okay. Um, just be braced. The history, all right, all right. The father, the father of modern philosophy was a guy named Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant, in one of his books, made a statement that has just stuck in our culture, and it is this. Religions are subjectively helpful, but they're not objectively true. Immanuel Kant, several hundred years ago, said all religions are subjectively helpful, but they're not objectively true. You shouldn't evaluate it on an objective basis. You don't evaluate it on a subjective basis. Do you know the difference in subjective and objective truth? Objective truth is truth that's true regardless of how you feel about it. For example, if I looked out at, you know, the Summit Church and I said, okay, um, what is the capital of New York State? And somebody back in the back stood up and said, oh, clearly it's New York City because it shares the same name. It's the most famous city in the world. It's a city so nice. They named it twice. It's New York City, right? And I said, well, 
That's a good guess. I can see why you thought that, but no, it's, it's Albany. And you say, mm, I feel really passionate that it's New York City. And in fact, all my friends around here all agree with me. We all agree that it's New York City. In fact, let's take a vote. And they take a vote, and half of you agree that it's New York City. I can say, I don't care if the whole place thinks it's New York City. I don't care if it ought to be New York City. It's Albany. That's objective truth. That's different than subjective truth, because subjective truth would be something like, I'm hot. Right? Not like the way I look, although that's <laughs> subjective too, okay? But um, I'm hot like I feel hot. If I were to say right now, I'm hot, I feel hot in here, half of you would agree and half of you'd say, no, it's cold. My wife and I have this discussion every single night, right? And so I'm going to the thermostat, turning it down. She's going, turn it, you know, turning it up because it's a subjective feeling. It's true for her. It's not true for me, okay? People put religion following cut. He said, religion goes in the subjective category and our societies follow along since then. But our, our, excuse me, are our beliefs about God, are they really subjective? Is the experience of salvation subjective? Is faith in Jesus true because it works for us? Because it makes us more moral, gives us a moral compass? Is it true because it brings us comfort in dark times? Certainly, by the way, you hear a lot of Christians talk about it. You'd think that's why it was true. But look at what's being taught by this miracle. This man is lame, and he can't walk. He needed a real power to heal him. He didn't need stories about Jesus and other people walking that made him feel warm and fuzzy on dark nights. He didn't need parables that persuaded him to be nice to people or encourage him to share his lunch. He needed a real power to give strength to his dead legs. Peter says our soul's salvation is like that. Our salvation was accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus did not get out of the grave because of a subjective preference he had for life. He got out of the grave because God's objective deliverance over death. We simply didn't need, and weren't bad people that needed to be persuaded to become better people. We didn't need something to give us, you know, warmth and groovy vibes when we're lonely. We needed objective forgiveness for our sins, which was going to be accomplished by someone dying in our place, and Jesus did that. And we needed our dead souls to be made alive again, and that took Jesus coming out of the grave so that he could give life to all who believe. According to Jesus and the apostles, our salvation, hear this, is not about a new philosophy. It's not about feelings of comforts. It's about a sin debt we couldn't pay, like this lame man that kept us from the presence of God. It's about our being dead in sin, chained to our depravity, unable to break our addictions to the lust of the flesh, unable to walk in righteousness. And so God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid our sin debt by living the life that we were supposed to live and then dying to death. We've been condemned to die in our place so that when we received him, we would be declared righteous, not on the basis of the fact that we were becoming better people, but on the fact of what he accomplished in our place and gave to us as a gift. He raised himself from the dead so that we could, he could live in us in the person of the Holy Spirit and infuse us, not with good feelings, but with the actual power of new life. Which is why Jesus said, I'll be wounded for their transgressions. I'll be punished for their iniquities. The price of their peace is going to be upon me, and then by my stripes they can be healed. Though their sins are like scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow, because I'll take my blood and I will wash them clean. Right? Though they are dead in their sin, if they believe in me, they will be buried with me by baptism into death. That just like Christ, I was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, they also will walk in newness of life. That those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. 
That's not a subjective feeling. That's an objective deliverance. And my friend, listen to me. One of life's most important questions is for you to figure out whether or not the salvation thing is subjective or objective. Because if it's subjective, then yeah, it really is whatever you want to believe. But if it's objective, then you've got to get it right. Because if you ever give a subjective answer to an objective question, you end up in disaster. Let me illustrate that this way. Um, Already talked about Carolina. Let's talk about NC State for a minute. So you got a guy at NC State. This is kind of a silly illustration, but it'll help you see what I'm talking about. Um, you got a guy at NC State who sees a girl he thinks is really hot. So he goes up to her. He's like, hey, you're really hot. I'd really like to get your phone number. She's like, well, you're kind of cute. I'd, I'd like to give you my phone number. And she says, do you have something to write down? And he says, I don't have anything on me to write your number down. Just tell it to me, and I'll remember it. And she says, okay, um, my phone number is 919. He's like, 919, got that. Um, 555, 555. One, two, three, six. He's like, one, two, three. No, I'm never going to remember that six. One, two, three, four. That makes a whole lot more sense. Your number is 919-555-1234. That's totally easy to remember. And she responds to him by saying, you can call 919-555-1234 if you want but if you are going to get me on the other line, you are going to call 555-1236, regardless of how you feel about it. If God has made an objective way of salvation, then you have to understand exactly what he laid out, and that is the only door by which you can go to him on through. Can I boil down for you all the various questions about religion that divide people? Can I just condense them into one question? It's, it's really simple. You take every religious disagreement in the world, you combine and condense it down. It's got one question that divides them. Here it is. You ready? Who can save us? Who can save us? Can we save ourselves? If we can save ourselves, there can be multiple ways to God. Choose a path. Do your best. Try to be a good person in the religious way that you've chosen. But see, my friend, if God is the only one who can save us, if God is the only one who could overcome our sin debt and deliver us from death, then salvation is only found in the place where he has provided it. There is salvation, Peter said, and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Two key things in that verse, given. Salvation is given. It's a gift that God gives. Secondly, no other name. If salvation is something that God has given, then it's only found in the place where God has provided it, and that's in the name of Jesus. For years here, I've used this story that I'm about to tell you to illustrate that. Whenever I tell you a story I've told you before, I always feel a little sheepish because another bunch of you have already heard this story. But there are 1,500 of you that, I checked the last time I told this story, there are 1,500 of you that are here now that weren't here when I told this whatever amount of time ago, all right? So if you're like, I've already heard this story, I'm not telling it for you, I'm telling it for that person next to you, don't be selfish, okay? All right. Um, it was back when I was in college, I was on an airline, and uh, I was sitting next to a girl who um, was, I was a student at Campbell University, hello Campbell. Um, student at Campbell University at the time, and she happened to be on her way back up to Harvard University. Immediately, I felt like we had a connection, you know, just <laughs> had some things in common. She was, she was gorgeous, and this is before I was married, very important detail, I'd never met Veronica, who's much more beautiful, but um, she was gorgeous. Her name, she was from Guatemala, her name was Berta, okay, Berta, not Bertha, Berta, all right? And uh, so I'm talking to Barta, and I start telling her about Jesus, and, uh, and she's listening to me, 
And she's just, you know, kind of, and she's like, I, she says, I got to tell you, about halfway through the conversation, halfway through the conversation, she said, I got to tell you, um, I'm around the smartest people in the world at Harvard University. I don't think I've ever heard a young guy our age talk with such clarity, such conviction, such passion, such eloquence. She said, I find that really attractive. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you do. Now, again, I'm not married at this point. I remember Monica, I'm like, this is, she's going to get saved. We're going to get married. This is going to be a great story someday. She's going to Harvard. She's going to be rich. I'm going to be, this is like a dream. This is one conversation. My whole life's about to be set. And um, so we uh, I'm, keep talking to her and we get to the part in this, that I'm like, you know, well, Jesus died for you and he died to save you and you got to trust him as your savior. And she's sitting there in her seat. She kind of like, yeah. She goes, I, you know, she's actually tried it for a while. It just didn't work for me. It never took. She goes, I'm really glad that you found something that works for you, but I, I, I'm just trying some other stuff because it, it's just not for me. And I'm like, I'm like, but it's a, it is for you. <laughs> Jesus said in John 14, 6, that he was the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Not a way, a truth, a life. He's the only one. And she says, yeah, but I'm telling you, it just doesn't work for me. I'm glad it works for you, but it's not. And I said, but you're not reading what Jesus said. I'm like, read it. And so she reads it. And she looks at me and she says, are you actually trying to tell me that you think that unless I come through Jesus, that I can't connect to God? And I said, but I'm not telling you that. Jesus is telling you that. And remember, she looks at me and she says, I, I think you've got to be the most arrogant person I've ever talked to. And I'm like, no, no, no. Passionate, eloquent, attractive. That's what you said. And she sat back in her seat. She said, I don't want to have this conversation anymore. Just sat back. I'm like, oh, like, what's next? What do I do now? And um, I, I remember this thing I'd heard. And I leaned, I probably shouldn't have said this to her. It was kind of catty. Um, but I leaned up to her and I said, Berta, I got one more thing to say to you. And she said, what? I said, I just want you to know, I'm really glad that the pilot of this airplane doesn't look at the runway the same way that you do heaven. She said, what do you mean? I said, let's just say that he comes on the intercom and says, I'm sick and tired of that arrogant little airport telling me when and where and how exactly I got to land that plane. I'm coming in on my own schedule. I'm coming in on my own speed. I'm going to land wherever the heck that I want to land. I'm going to try it upside down today in the middle of the greenway. I was like, personally, I'm glad that he's just not going on what, what he feels like works for him. I'm glad he's going out on the little narrow strip they call the runway laid out by the airport. She looks at me and she said, that's not fair. I said, yes, it is. That's Campbell 1, Harvard 0, if you want to write that down your little book right there. Right? <laughs> now, I shouldn't have said that. It was catty. I'm much more mature now, and I never act that way. But do you understand the point that I'm trying to make? If God is the one that saves, if it's true, like Revelation says, that our song throughout eternity is salvation belongs to God, then salvation is only found in the place where he provided it. If you can save yourself, and if our song in heaven is going to be, I was a good person, I treated people nicely, that's why I'm here then there's multiple ways to God. But if God is the only one who can save, then it's only found in the place where he provided it. So the question you gotta answer is very simple. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he actually rise from the dead? Because if he did, he was doing something for you you couldn't do for yourself because you can't raise yourself from the dead. And if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then he gets to make the rules about salvation. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Do you believe that? If so, are you willing to let him make the rules about salvation? 
Summit Church, if we believe this, see, it changes how we see the world. I, I see four elements to me that describe Peter's witness. This is like a whole other sermon that I'm not going to preach to you, but just jot these down. He's bold. He's bold because he knows that truth doesn't come from inside him. Truth is something that comes through him from God. He is speaking like a man that is speaking a heavenly message. He's bold. Number two, he's humble. He's humble because he realizes he's not better than other people or smarter. He's just speaking what God has revealed. He's tenacious. You know, tenacious means he won't give up. Peter's like, hey, you can put us in prison. We're not going to shut up. In fact, we'll probably win the guard to Christ. You leave us in there long enough, we're going to write some books. And we're going to pass them around the world, and it's going to be good. They're tenacious. They're urgent. They've got to tell as many people as possible, as fast as possible. You want to know how to start a movement? That's how you start it. You ever think about what made this sweep the world? How do a bunch of guys in a backwoods part of the world who have no education, who end up in prison within three chapters, how do they start a movement that sweeps the world? That's how you start it. You got people who are bold because they speak for God, but they're humble because they realize it's grace. They're tenacious because they know that Jesus raised from the dead and he's never given up either. And they are urgent because they know it depends on them telling people as fast as possible. Summit Church, if that's our cornerstone, that's what we become like. If we're not like that, it means he's not really our cornerstone. Are you bold, tenacious, urgent, and humble? Listen, do not get me wrong here. I'm not telling you, hey, you need to go out and do all these things. Become bold. Make you feel guilty because you're not like this. Put it on a to-do list for you to go do better. No, you're putting the car before the horse at that point. The point is, if you understand the gospel, you will become bold, tenacious, humble. The other way. (laughs) urgent. <laughs> you, you see what I'm getting at? I'm not saying that if you do those things better, God will accept you more. I'm saying that if you understand that God accepts you as a gift of grace, you will become all those things naturally because when he's the cornerstone, the shape of the whole building changes. So I'm a church, if we believe this, what does it change? You say, well, I, I just don't think it's fair. I just don't think it's fair that this is the way of salvation. Listen, God owes no man salvation. The fact that any of us are saved is an act of unspeakable grace. But I can tell you what is unfair. What is unfair is that those of us who do know it not do everything we can within our power to help others who do not yet know it. So I'm a church, what if this is true? What if the world really is completely lame? What if they really are shut out from the presence of God? What if the power of salvation really is only found in the name of Jesus? I've had people over the years tell me, how can you send people to other parts of the world, away from their families, and then going into another society where you're going to convince them to believe something that's going to cause them to be rejected by their family and ostracized by their community? Isn't that cruel? And my answer is, if it's a matter of subjective preference, yes, it is cruel. But if it's true then it would be cruel not for us to go. Have you grasped the biblical, global implications of the gospel? It was in in college, I've told you, that I really became aware of the weightiness of this. I mean, I understood Christian doctrine before that, but it was in the middle of college that it suddenly became real to me that that Jesus, Acts 4.12 was true, that there's salvation found in nobody else. And I, I think I've told you that, that I knew at that point, as a junior in college, I had three, I had three options. I could deny it. I could deny it and say, well, I just don't really like that, so I'm just going to say that there's probably a bunch of ways to get to God, and, you know, in the end, love wins. 
We call that liberalism. And there's a lot of people that go down that path. They find a lot of the parts of the Bible uncomfortable, so they just reconform God in their image. I'm telling you this, 19 years ago, I stood on the edge, the edge, leaning over it, of becoming Rob Bell, if you know who that is, who's a very popular speaker right now who basically has said that. He said, you know what, there really are multiple ways to God. Jesus might be the best way, but there's a bunch of them. Just go the direction you need to go. You cannot go down that path. Because once you start picking and choosing once you, what you want to believe in the Bible, where does that end? You're not going to end up with God. You're going to end up with God looking just like you. I knew I, I could deny it and become a liberal. Number two, I could ignore it, which is what I think most of us do. Let's just put our head in the sand and pretend that Jesus really came just to you know, give us nice little houses and gives us purpose and helps our families come together and, you know, bless you, brother. You know, kind of stuff makes you want to vomit. You could ignore it or I could embrace it. I could embrace it and say, God, I can't save the world. I can't even save my own children. But God, here's who I am. Here's all that I have. Would you use me to bring other people to Jesus? That's what I did when I was a junior in college. That's where it led me to where I am today, doing what I do. That was God's answer for me. That's how he was going to use me. Can I tell you something? The answer is not going to be the same for you. When you offer yourself to God that way, he's not going to make you a pastor or a missionary necessarily. Some of you God equipped to be doctors, lawyers, um, businessmen, uh, bakers, candlestick makers, whatever you want to put there. He, he's given you the ability to do that. But I do know that every one of you can come to a point where you say, God, in the light of what's going on in the world, God, I want to offer myself to you. God, use me to bring other people to Jesus. Have you ever grappled with the global implications of the gospel? You want to know how a worldwide movement got birthed? That's how it got birthed. Bold, tenacious, humble, urgent. You want to know how a movement will get started in your workplace when you become bold, tenacious, urgent, humble? You want to know how it sweeps your campus when you become bold, tenacious, urgent, humble? You want to know how to become those things? You just believe the gospel. That's how you become those things. Have you grappled with the global implications of the gospel? Have you, gra- have you really grappled with what it means for people around you you got people in your lives that have never heard this message, have they? And they work with you. They live across the hall from you. Several years ago, I was a youth pastor, and I led a girl to Christ through our youth group. And she says, after she, she started to come, she got saved about three or four months later. She said, you got to tell my sister this. you gotta, you got to come explain this to my sister. Um, so I went to their house, her house. My sister was two years younger. I sat down with her sister. It was in 10th grade at the time. And I explained the gospel to her. And she, you know, just me and her, she received Christ. She, she, she looks at me, she's weeping. And that's just me and her. And this girl says, hold on a minute. I got to go get my older sister. She's got to hear this. Now, remember the older sister is the one that set the whole thing up. So I go, and she goes and gets the older sister, brings her back, sits her down. And she looks at me and says, tell her what you just told me. And I was like, ah, uh, she already knows because she's the one that set all this up. And you should have seen the look on this girl's face. She turned to her sister and she said, you knew? And she said, yeah. And she said, how long have you known? And she said, well, about three months. And I remember this girl looking with just this look of bewilderment. She said, you came to understand this three months ago, and this is the first time I'm hearing about it. Now, this story ends happily because they both end up as believers, but what does that look like for you? I'm not trying to create a guilt trip in you. I'm not. I'm not. 
But what's it look like when somebody looks at you and says, you knew, you knew, you knew that there was salvation only in Jesus. And you just cared too much about your reputation and what I would say that you didn't say anything. Have you grappled with the global implications of the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? Hudson Taylor, one of the first missionaries to China, it was said of him that he could hardly stand to be in an English-speaking service in England where he was from. Because when he'd hear a thousand English voices worshiping Jesus, it just crushed him to think that there were millions of Chinese who never even heard his name. So he would just excuse himself during the worship and go stand out back because he couldn't handle it. And he prayed this for the English church of his day in the 19th century. Would that God make hell so real to the English church that they can never rest. I pray that prayer for you. Would that God make hell so real and make the gospel so sweet to the Summit Church that we can never rest. We're not trying to burn ourselves out. We can't do everything, but we can offer ourselves to God and say, God, would you use me to help other people know Jesus? Why don't you bow your heads with me if you would? My friend, listen, do you believe the gospel? Let me talk to people who aren't Christians yet. You may not have all the questions answered, but do you understand that Jesus came because he loves you? He came to die for your sin. He came and says, there's no way for you to come to the Father but through me. There's no name given under heaven except mine that you gotta be saved through. Do you understand that? And are you ready to receive him? It happens through repentance and belief. Repent means you recognize that he's God and that he's in charge. Belief means you receive the gift that he's offered to you. You may have a thousand other questions that aren't answered yet, but you're, you know the answer to this one, and you say, I'm ready to receive Jesus. If you've never done that, I would invite you right now to just, with the hands and eyes of your heart, reach up and embrace Christ and say, I receive you, Jesus, as my personal Savior. That person that invited you, you lean over to them and say, man, right after this, we need to go out. God, I got some questions I need to ask you, and they'll take you out to lunch or dinner and and you'll, uh, you'll ask them all the questions you got. Summit Church, have you, believers, grappled with these implications? Here's my question for you. When you stand before God, and God says, what did you do with your life in light of these global realities? Are you going to have a good answer for him? When God asks that question, and he will, are you going to have a good answer for him? What did you do in light? of Acts 4.12. Father, make the Summit Church a church that is serious about the gospel. Make me a man and a leader that is serious about the gospel. Make me a daddy that is serious about the gospel. God, give us renewed vision, renewed passion. Help us to see and worship, we pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.